0: listening to The Futures Podcast with me, Luke Robert Mason. On this episode, I speak to Professor of Continental Philosophy at Angola Ruskin University, Patricia McCormack.
1: I think that if we really wanted to be evolutionary and progressive, we would be imagining and creating utterly unthinkable ways in which to be
0: Patricia shared her insights into how the a-human might provide a solution to the growing ecological crisis, why self-extinction should be considered a compassionate act, and why antinatalism, abolitionist veganism, and even occultism might be our best strategies for combating human exceptionalism. Patricia, you're an advocate for a humanism. And I guess the best way to summarise your approach is go vegan and don't breed. And you're calling for a way of living that is antinatalist, abolitionist, atheist, and of course, vegan. So I guess my first question is, why?
1: That's an enormous question. I think it's a kind of accumulation of a lifetime of different interrogations into some of the arbitrary practices that we're born into. And that moment of revelation when you realise they're arbitrary as a human and mm-hmm. also when you think about the impetus to power that comes from behind those default practices. So certain things that we do and we're raised to do, whether it's by individual parents or by society or all of the different environments that occur, you know, multiply across each other, that we operate a variety of human practices that are considered default. And yet when you really examine them and you examine the material reality of them, and I know reality is a contested idea, but (laughs) I realize that a lot of the practices we do are about not simply being a good person, but accruing the most Power to navigate the world as mm. you would see fit. So this means that we're affiliating these bizarre and, again, also arbitrary capitalist enchantments of things like free will as competition with everything mm. else on Earth. So free will is not about goodness. And, you know, I'm a fan of nature, so I'm not associating any particular qualities with good or evil. What I am associating is that the qualities ascribed to good and evil when they come from an anthropocentric perspective at best arbitrary and at worst utterly hypocritical and so over years and over different phases of my life they have come to lead to those advocation points where you know I wasn't born a vegan I wasn't raised a vegan I wasn't raised anti-natalist and so there were many things that I had to bear witness to in order to understand that this is just not only violent and devastating but Mm. also unnecessary and that confounded me as a philosopher. And so the why would be that we have this voluminous world here now that we're utterly fucking. Yeah in the most violating way, and it's because humans with our particular anthropocentric impulses seem to have this enamourment with power, and I mean power not in the form of will but in the form of overarching systems that allow you to climb above others,
2: Mm.
1: and we affiliate that with success or even with happiness, And it doesn't make any sense to me when there are so many glorious and fabulous and perverse and wonderful things in the world that we can be doing and it also therefore seems kind of banal and lacking in imagination to simply adhere to these practices.
0: Well, That's the interesting thing, because people make certain assumptions about your work. They think you have something against the human being, but what you're actually against is human exceptionalism, the sort of exceptionalism which has given rise to a certain belief that we can extract resources from nature in the name of human progress, and do this through things like colonialism and capitalism. So with that in mind, I guess antinatalism certainly becomes an effective way to escape the monodirectional linearity of progress by simply ending progress altogether. In other words, the best way to escape the system is to end the humans who are Creating it. Basically, Patricia, it feels like you're arguing that we should throw the baby out with the bathwater or not even have the babies in the bath to begin with in the first place. But is there anything redeemable about the 21st century human being? Or is the most moral thing that we could do to help this planet simply just to get out of the way?
1: I think. There are a number of things going on there. First of all, the word progress has this strange Mm -hmm. accumulative insinuation as if further is better, higher is better, and Mm -hmm. again, that's an arbitrary connection. Progress simply means moving, and whether we progress, things are moving and changing all the time, no matter what. The question is, how do we dissipate and multiply the trajectories upon which things move instead of quickening back to this very rigid, single, self-destructive in many ways inclination that the white Western capitalist model seduces us with. So I think that if we really wanted to be evolutionary and progressive, we would be imagining and creating utterly unthinkable ways in which to be as we are now, because As you know, the book doesn't advocate that everyone needs to go out and kill themselves right now, (laughs) though if they wished to, we shouldn't deny people agency over their own lives. However, I think that what these so-called extreme claims are also doing is they're addressing some of the fundamental questions that philosophy seems to return to in its own sense of self-doubt that has become almost hysterical. That used to be questions about... God and man, and then became questions about man and world. And they ultimately end up being the same question, Mm. which is why are we here? How can we live forever? But then also people are so scared of the apocalypse and there are apocalypses going on every day for individuals. So there's also this sense that one person's subjectivity is somehow a topography for all human existence. So Mm. I need to be okay so everyone else can be okay. And the further sense that if you change, it is necessarily privation, which I've always found really bizarre because – not having children isn't privation. You can't deprive yourself of something that doesn't exist. And then uh-huh. of course, you know, you hear the parents lamenting about how hard it is to be a parent. Well, no one twisted your arm, but also the idea that somehow each individual has to have some form of legacy. Why? You can't live forever. What is so apocalyptic about the fact that one day you will die when right now you could be doing An infinite variety of things you've never even thought of doing in order to care for this world at this time. And the many millions of humans and non humans that would absolutely love a creative capacity of care in each of us who have the privilege of being white Westerners or Mm. white Western men or even just people in the West who can earn enough to pay their rent and get by and then have a bit of time left over. So we also need to think differently in terms of privation and voluptuous joy because there's so much voluptuous joy to be had in all the other things you can be instead of being someone that pays to have animals tortured and murdered in order to eat them or Mm. someone who, for whatever reason, has to reproduce in order to create your own eugenic bloodline. We we never talk about those kinds of default things and what really motivates them when you look at them from a different perspective, what what happens when we look at so-called human impulses from a non-human perspective, from an a-human perspective. They look quite violent, also quite ridiculous, also quite self-oppressive in so many ways. Yes, it might be easier to be... A man, for example, but you have to really man up in order to maintain that position of power. So what kind of creative capacity can happen when you disanchor yourself from those default positions of power that most people see as benign simply because they are common, but that when you really interrogate them, they are actually utterly unthinkable in another perspective?
0: So what you're really taking issue with here is the Anthropocene, this period of time where human action is having a massive impact over the planet. In your mind, ahumanism presents a credible solution to this. So for our audience, what is the Anthropocene and why is the concept of the a-human so appealing to you?
1: Put very simply, and I'm not a geo specialist, but the Anthropocene is the sixth age of the Earth, and it's the first age where the impact of one species on the Earth is now fundamentally changing what would be considered natural geoevolution. Now, all of these words are also problematic, but that's put simply. Some people call it the age of the human. Ironically, it's also heralding the sixth mass extinction, so mm. we are to blame for a mass extinction. And some people posit it as beginning during the Enlightenment. Some people posit it as beginning in the 1950s. We have arguments as to at what point did the measure of human occupation, and I'm going to use that word occupation because it went from habitation to occupation, Mm -hmm. at what point did the earth fundamentally change And therefore, our understanding of any already problematic Cartesian division between nature and culture, or from a Rousseau perspective, social contract and natural contract happen. At what change were we no longer able to talk about nature as something that hadn't been somehow, I won't say distorted, but certainly made more malleable toward perhaps different trajectories because of human intervention. Mm. So that's the Anthropocene. And some people have called it progress. Some people have called it the age of man. The a-human is simply a concept I came up with based on the work of a philosopher called Pierre-Félix Quattari, and he uses this prefix a to talk about uh, moving away from bifurcations of things like nature culture, human animal, any bifurcation you can think of, which is how the world is usually reduced to. And also the point is that in any bifurcation, we get a lesser and a greater term or a dominant and an oppressor term. So moving away from that binary also moves us away from this dissymmetry or isomorphic imbalance. And he talked about it because he was discussing a signifying systems, which are the ways in which we apprehend the world or the ways in which we perceive the world, and I thought because I came from posthumanism, I was increasingly seeing posthumanism go in one of two directions, usually singularly. Either people would go full techno, and it'd be the only way, you know, transhumanism. I guess you would
2: mm-hmm.
1: reduce it to, but it's a little more complex. It's cyborgism without the attention to things like hybridity and what we owe to nature and the animal other in our technological advancements. And that's got a kind of eternity, let's replace God with technology affiliation. And then in a lot of post-human philosophy, I was seeing a lot of ethology and studies of animal behavior being co-opted as some kind of fetishistic thing to make us all out there and wacky, and oh, you know, let's let's be insects and let's be this and that. And it's no different to me than the co-option of, for example, femininity in a lot of posthumanism, like becoming woman. Or, and I don't mean things like trans identity. I mean this performativity of femininity is somehow so perverse and so performatively radical in some mm. inherent way, and similarly some forms of modern primitivism the co-option and fetishization and some some new age practices are the co-option and fetishization of different cultures modern and ancient and what all of these co-options and fetishizations do is that they take the power they don't divest the individual of the power they have from their position of privilege they just add on a bit of co-opted fetishized fun, hmm. and then they can go back to their normal empowered life. So those are the two trajectories I saw post-humanism going in. And I was really trying to think of how to not be fetishistic but also not be techno-fetishistic. And so I just was inspired by Guattari to think, well, I am human, I was born human, I can't deny that. I have human privilege, which in my opinion is the most encroaching privilege of all privilege, no matter who you are and what kind of human you are, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: not wanting to create another false division. But we can't pretend not to be human anymore. There's no such thing as going back to nature. I mean, that's a myth like any other myth, but unlike other myths in the age of the Anthropocene, we don't even know what nature is anymore because we don't know what we've done. We're evaluating what we've done rather than evaluating what to do.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And so that was how I developed it. All the a-human is, is it is a call to imagining and creating multiple different ways and lines of flight to act, think, and be differently in the world collectively, individually, globally, locally, in a way that dismantles human exceptionalism. Mm. So there's no definition of what it is. There's just probably a definition of what, it what it's not. yeah. <laughs> and that means that it has an obligation but also an artistic wonderment of a responsibility to create. And mm. so it should be not considered a nihilistic or a pessimistic philosophy but it should be considered both an ethical gift or the gift that ethics brings us as individuals. And as a form of accountability that does something differently instead of just lamenting, because I think that even the most wanting to be activist people, we're we're in a state of lamentation that can lead to atrophy and that's not helpful.
0: Well, that's a fascinating understanding of the post human. I guess it's true that a lot of post humanist visions involve looking at machines or animals as the raw material for possible human enhancement. For example, a post humanist might look at a bat and think, wow, what would it be like to hear? ultrasound? How will that change my human experience? How does the human being get ultrasound abilities? Well, we co-opt those and integrate animal and machine experience into human experience. So how do you think we should dismantle or challenge the dominance of the human being? One is the Anti-natalist approach, stop having babies, but then there's also self-extinction and depopulation. Uh, what sort of processes should an a-human activist be involved with?
1: I think depopulation is problematic because mm. it smells a lot like eugenics. Right. And the question of who decides is a really strong question. And so I don't think that depopulation is the answer because I think that reduction doesn't work. I think that myths such as sustainability don't work. Mm. What are we sustaining? Are we sustaining what we're doing now? Because that seems pretty grim.
0: That's exactly it.
1: (laughs) And also things that, you know, I'll only have one child. if, if, If you have any understanding of maths, you know that you're already really stuffing it up. Or my child will be different, which is another question entirely and something that I just can't even speak about without getting atrociously angry. So there are different strategies, I guess. Antinatalism, surprisingly, is the thing that has made people most angry about my work and led to the most death threats. And I find that quite strange because it's almost like the one thing you can't say is what is so great about you that you need to have a baby? And people don't want to answer that. And Uh I'm still yet to get a really good response to why do you need to reproduce? I've got some terrible responses, but the the moment of exhaustion of that question is the moment where people realise that there's no real reason for humans to exist and any reason that there is, is either religious, mystical, rubbish forms of science and certain, as we know, forms of science have become their own kind of religious ideology and questioning them is basically questioning the individual rather than the science.
0: In listening to you say that, I wonder if that explains the personal mental crises that so many seem to suffer. Young individuals today, they're they're dealing with mental health issues and they often don't know the purpose of their own existence. The question of what it means to be human becomes one of what is my purpose purpose. And an attempt to find purpose, they express themselves through social media and little digital versions of themselves in an attempt to connect with some higher, greater meaning. But I mean, that's all just a a, a simulation of, of what it means to be human.
1: So let's pop out a baby, and then it'll all be better.
0: Well, it might save the marriage, but uh,
1: <laughs> or it might destroy the marriage. But that's a, very, that's a very that's a very norm thing to say, though. Luke. I mean, really, that's pretty grim. <laughs> but also, if you need to breed to feel better about the reason for your existence, then we have a serious problem. Mm. And I don't think that the question is necessarily important if it's being asked in that narcissistic way, like not why are humans here, but why am I here? Mm -hmm. If you're asking that question, then that's pretty luxuriant. Mm. If you're in a situation where you can sit around contemplating your own existential crisis, (laughs) then I don't know, go and get a hobby or something because that just seems like a luxuriant kind of Uh thing to be doing. And what if there's never been an answer? And obviously from a philosophical perspective, there's never been an answer. Mm. These philosophers, they're they're usually a certain kind of philosophy you can imagine, a certain gender, a certain race, keep asking, you know, what is the meaning of my existence? What is is the meaning of my existence? And then no one has an answer. And then when people decide, oh, well, actually I'm going to now be a nihilist or an existentialist and realise there is no meaning... So I'm going to sulk, whereas you've got the queers and the feminists going out going, no, there's no meaning for my existence, doesn't mean that I'm not. So Uh here I am, so I'm going to do this and that and whatever and create, but create differently. Instead of reproducing tired old ideas, instead of reproducing the same questions, instead of reproducing human beings, certain fields of philosophy have decided to produce differently and produce different things. and. The crisis of why are we here would be a better question if it was what can I do?
0: Whilst I'm here, yeah.
1: Because everyone, no matter their ability levels, can do things in different ways. And that is actually what is fantastic about stopping this ridiculously self-absorbed question of why am I here and starting to ask what can I do because- Everyone can do something which makes their own existence only available to them in a way that means that all of us individually capable of forms of expression and action that if you want to go down that route, really do make us special individuals. But more than that, it shows that humans are not a unified collective of a kind of Vitruvian ideal, but instead humans are all very different and no signifying regimes, be they church or state or family, are going to ever be able to encompass them. So maybe a lot of the crises are why don't I fit in? Mm. Why doesn't blah, blah love me? And instead we could think about what am I able to do? And there is so much care needed in the world in so many different fields I think sometimes, because I know that my students are, a lot of them, they're really not that interested in breeding and not that interested in identity politics that are super fixed. So they're mm. less interested in a fixed form of gender and a fixed form of sexuality. And they seem to be much more interested in embracing what they can do differently and creatively. and. Of course, yes, this same generation also is living in a perpetual mirror stage of unless I see myself on social media, I will cease to exist. But what's so bad about not existing? Because we exist in different ways. So some people exist very visibly. Some people exist quite invisibly, happily. Mm -hmm. Some people are disallowed to exist or disallowed to exist visibly. There's not one way of being anyway. So what is the reason for my being is a redundant question in that sense. And also key to like a Spinozan ethical understanding of beings is that it's not what something is, but that something is that gives it the right to exist.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And what that means is that you don't say shouldn't kill dogs because they're dogs because something is, it means that they have the right to exist.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: If something isn't, Like unborn children, whether they be in utero or in the magic land of I'm going to have kids one day, then there's no wrong in not having them exist. But if something exists, someone exists, because animals are some ones, not some things, then they have the right to be simply as they are without having to vindicate their existence. And I think that maybe the young queer kids have got it right because they're like, this is who I am. And I don't care, and the lack of harm that many of those announcements do is very different to the very ossified, mythologized right wing, which is I'm a proud white man, mm. blah, blah, blah. That's not who you are. That's the categories you're slotting yourself into. So really you don't have any free will at all. You just have an absolute hard-on for categories. Mm. And wanting to be in the top one.
0: So so in a funny sort of way, doing nothing might be the kindest thing that we could do.
1: I think that's really attentive to a lot of what some people misunderstand is that there's a concept from Michel Serre called grace, which is a leaving bee. And because we live in this strange anthropocentric world, we used to think that activism was about getting out there and getting hit by the cops and that kind Uh. of stuff. Abolitionist veganism is a form of boycott as well as a form of exploring everything else there is to eat and do. Now, we think of veganism as a doing, but in a way, it's both a doing and a not doing. Hmm. In the same way that not having children is not harming, but we don't think of that as an activism. We think of that as a privation, but it's a doing hmm. and a not doing. So we live in such a strange world, especially those of us who live in the West. That the differentiation between passive and active activism is becoming a lot more malleable.
0: It feels like it all comes back down to, but what about the children, Patricia? You know, which seems to be the way in which we look at the world now. Well,
1: what about all the children that don't have a home?
0: Yeah. What about the people who don't even have the status of human in some cases, let alone uh, alone a human? But a lot of people net out when they're thinking about that reason for being. They net out on, my reason for being here is to make the world a better place for future generations. And we've got to this point at which we're now, I mean, there's work being done to Count future generations in the forecasting of how we think about the future. Again, believing that there is going to be a future like that is again a lineal narrative and an assumption that there is going to be a progress
1: and somehow globally symmetrical as well. Like yeah. all the kids,
0: yeah, all yeah. Of them. and they're going to have a much better life than the ones yeah. in the past. So we yeah, have to, yeah. we have to, uh, unless we screw up the Earth now. And and really, that's sort of how the dominant environmentalist movement are defining this narrative right now, and a lot of that is captured in things like Extinction Rebellion.
1: Well, as you know from the book, I'm no fan of Extinction I, I Rebellion.
0: And, and 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 it was fascinating to hear your critique of Extinction Rebellion, because I had never thought about it that way before until I read your work. But they are, they're obsessed with children the, the children are the form of futurity they have greta thunberg who is their child mascot of the future generations she stands up in the un and goes you are ruining things for you know the future children of my generation and it absolves them in a funny sort of way of dealing with the issues of today. If it's a rebellion against the extinction, again, all it does is not prioritise the environment. It prioritises, sorry, the humans. Essentially, the only reason for protecting the earth is for the sole purpose, for the continuation of humanity. And if humanity wasn't part of the equation, then no, would be, nobody would be having an extinction rebellion. It would just be an extinction or a rebellion. Pick one. <laughs> you know?
1: If I can't be there to see it, then it doesn't matter. Yeah. Well, in Thunberg's defence, she's a lot more nuanced than the media give her credit no, for. She's vegan, that's she's anti natalist, and I think that she informed, I formed
0: um, Greta was an antinatalist.
1: Well, she says that she won't have children.
0: Uh, that's interesting.
1: Um, I don't know if she's actually said she's anti natalist, but she okay. has said that she doesn't plan to have children. What I think she was doing was actually picking up on that rhetoric of people who wanna be selfish, mm. but then they wanna use children as their motive. Yeah. <laughs> so I wanna keep murdering animals so I can eat them. And I want to keep destroying the world by consuming. But I'm mainly worried about the children, Mm. that hypocrisy. She was like, I am the child. I'm standing here right in front of you. Like She she was able to harness or hijack, depending on what way you see it, Hmm. that hypocritical narrative and say, no, this is the child standing right in front of you and I'm telling you what I want. Are you going to do it? Or are you just going to continue to talk about children that are in the projected spirit baby future world that doesn't exist. Yeah, I mean, that what about the children is the same kind of narrative as the horrible terrorism that is anti-abortion. It's what about the non-existent.
0: It does feel like the possibility of extinction is being used as a tool to justify continuation.
1: And my question is, so what? No one's, everyone's talking about, well, but what if we go extinct? And I I can't help but just say, and?
0: No, that's, that's, that's true. But I mean, whilst we're talking about extinction, we're using that narrative as the reason to continue the technological progressive narrative. In other words, we have to go to Mars because we have to preserve the human. And more importantly, we have to preserve human thinking. So we have to develop AI to Export human thinking into AI. We have to develop space travel to get humans off this planet for when we inevitably destroy it. It feels like extinction is the justification for the continuation of linear progress as we stand right now.
1: Absolutely. And it, it sounds to me like it's just a really bad joke because every age has had its extinction cult. Every age. And yet we seem to think somehow our fear of extinctions the, the the real one. Like every other one has been just silly, silly olden days people worrying uh-huh. about some kind of cataclysmic event. But similarly, what about the extinction? Like if you talk to someone and you say, well, so what is that going to mean? You're going to die. Well, you're going to die anyway. Mm-hmm. You might die tomorrow in a car accident. And even if you weren't to die, what makes you so special? So counter- Balancing the crisis of subjectivity Mm. is this bizarre, hyper exceptionalism of certain individuals. Yeah. I need to be uploaded because I need to live forever. Why? Like why? And not only that, because I've had a number of answers and some of the answers are because I have more to do, but mostly it's just very basic things like I love life and I want to live
0: well, then live it now and stop spending all the time trying to work out how you can upload yourself ad infinitum to a machine. Like- and also,
1: really, what about life are you loving? You're loving the idea that you will be yeah. the Frankenstein who controls eternity. You <laughs> will be the one that gets the round of applause and everyone says, you're the best. Yeah, in your own little digital prison
0: it. of your own mind and of exactly. your own creation. Exactly. So, yeah.
1: again, it's this anchoring to power that is really what is loved. Not life, mm. not vitalism, not material, voluminous potential, but power.
0: Mm. And when this stuff sort of collides with transhumanism, you can see some weird contradictions. And it's interesting that all of the longevity folks, quite a few of them, they don't have children themselves or mm. you know, they're in situations where they've married partners and they, they can't biologically reproduce. So in their mind, the way to continue life is to just continue their own life ad infinitum. I do wonder if uh, if life extension technology should come with the caveat that you're also castrated or neutered. <laughs> I mean, how would that change the whole uh, whole decision?
1: Look, I've met so many different transhumanists, and they're really varied. And uh-huh. a lot of them would be absolutely fine with that. Yeah. In some ways, they are less. Violent toward the earth by deciding not to perpetrate Mm. reproduction upon the earth. So, in that sense, they're a little dinky and cute and (laughs) kind of funny. But in another way, obviously, there's a huge amount of vivisection and animal research that goes into transhumanism, as well as a huge amount of resource devastation. So we have to always be aware of the material, physical, actual costs to lives and the earth that is behind this virtualization of human perpetuity. It might seem like it doesn't take up a lot of space and it doesn't consume a lot of resources, but the developmental parts are, frankly, in terms of some of the experiments, horrific. And all we have to do is look at Elon Musk's recent adventures in revolting Mm. hubris to see that the idea of the internal life and mind of a non-human animal is utterly tormented beyond our worst capacity to think of the worst human genocide.
0: Mm, This this stuff does become much more tricky when non-humans enter the the field. And I love how you write in the book about animal rights and animal studies and how the whole thing feels kind of invalid because the whole game when it comes to animal rights is what is their equivalence to human beings you know how like us are they because that's how we define the rights that they deserve and i just wondered how do we go about then fighting i guess against our own species for organisms whose liberty would not necessarily benefit our own without trying to find a way to bring them into focus by giving them sort of human anthropocentric.
1: We just fight our own species. I mean, that's what I do, really. I <laughs> I, I have to fight my own speciesism.
0: Yeah. The best way to help the animals is to fight against the humans. Is that well, the, isn't, uh... that,
1: isn't that really the truth? Isn't uh-uh. the best way to fight racism to fight other humans? Isn't the best way to fight homophobia and misogyny to fight other humans? Well, mm. in so many ways, who are we fighting if not other humans? And the word fight doesn't mean war or aggression. It means a re of the understanding of how we manifest non-human life in the world because mm-hmm. currently we do that through a hierarchical geostrata of species, genus, but also use value, whether that's the use value of a non-human as a commodity or as in the way or as a kind of Oedipalized family member all of these non-humans through human perception. And so they can be gross such as species or they can be minute such as one's own individual pet
0: mm. or
1: something like that. And I think the hardest thing, and I can tell everyone listening right now, the hardest thing about being a vegan is other humans asking you about it.
2: All right.
1: It is not hard. Yeah. It is just annoying because I am constantly astonished at the amount of effort and energy and action that humans will do to defend their Malzonism mm. It's really a lot of energy that could be used in a variety of other things, not just abolitionist animal rights, but anything, literally anything. And I feel like some of the reasons. I mean, there's been some really beautiful psychological studies done, so I don't want to claim to have any knowledge of that. but it it once again shows that humans have been trained to be enamoured of power, and if you can't have power over other humans, then that power over non-humans is seen to be a granted given, whether that's God granted or nature mm. granted. And similarly, if you have been raised in a certain way and you have never questioned it, there is a moment of loss of sense of self when you realise that something you've been doing your whole life was never your decision in the first place, so you've never had free will. And that shouldn't be underestimated, but it also shows that it doesn't matter your age, your orientation of any kind, your anything really, you have more power as in ability of will, not as in enforcement, to act, create, and think differently than you think you do. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a liberation, but for many people, that's a moment of disenchantment from who they thought they were.
0: But, But to some degree, I mean, culture and technology is allowing veganism to be easier, more acceptable, and if anything, if it were happened the other way around, and we were just all vegans, and you know, but twenty years ago, someone went, "Hey, I'm a meat eater now," and we have to sit around the dinner table and go, "Oh God, James is a meat eater. Ah, oh, we've got to go to a restaurant that also serves meat. You know, it'd be weird in in that respect." So uh, I guess culture's moving that way anyway. So should we just ride it out? you know, for the next, I guess, 60 to 100 years. and
1: That doesn't help the pig who hasn't moved for three Mm. years with her babies being taken away from her now. That doesn't Mm. help the absolutely unbearable suffering that is going on now. It just doesn't. It is so easy to forget when we think long game. We have to think both. We have to think long game and now. Imagine someone- whether it's human or animal you love, being put into that experience. You know, we have testimonies to what Leotard calls the differon, the the other who cannot speak in the language of the dominant. Mm. And we still talk about those testimonies, whether they be from victims of genocide, of the Holocaust, of slavery. The fact that those stories are still important shows that that un Bearable beyond language suffering should never be forgotten. And yet it's happening right now. So the individual right now who has their own inner world and their own inner experience and who's dying of thirst or killing themselves with frustration because of the magnitude of suffering they're going through right now is absolutely valid to say right now to people what, the fuck is your excuse? Mm. And so in some ways you have to have this schizoanalytic mind of thinking long game and thinking right now. So a sense of hope is there's going to come a time where this is going to seem absurd, that people ate sentient beings when they didn't have to. We're not lions and we're not like running around the plains having to catch our food. We have so many options. And also we're not Amazonian tribes, so for I mean the, the amount of, we call it vegan bingo, you have this set of questions that people without fail think they're the first person to ask you, like <laughs> I'm the wishy one, and they're so trite. Uh-huh. And once again, the horror of it is not that it's an evil act, but it is seen as such a benign and trite thing. Mm. Make fun of the vegan. And look, make fun of the vegan. Make fun of me. I don't care because my subjectivity is not what I'm thinking about. Mm. You can annihilate me. You can devastate me. But there are individual sentient someones who are suffering unbelievable cruelty right now, and if you can make fun of them, then you can easily not understand the valid aspect of any form of life.
0: Yeah, it does feel like the most successful thing human beings have been able to do is externalize and then make invisible the horrific things that they do for the service of continuing, you know, corporate capitalism. I mean, the reality is as long as the market continues to eat meat and loves bacon and hamburgers, you know, this thing won't change at scale. It does feel though there is some form of sea change.
1: Oh, I definitely think I can't tell you like the the way that I eat now is completely different to 20 years ago because there just wasn't things about, mm. like it's phenomenal. But I'm also really shocked. So this shows that I do have a little optimistic faith in humanity. <laughs> I'm shocked when I see things like happy meat. Yeah. And I kind of wonder, so if I took your kid who's had a happy life and killed them and ate them, you're not going to put me in jail. You're going to be... <laughs> really glad that they had a happy life. Mm. And if people say it's not the same, I have to ask why. Yeah. Because your perception of the other is not the same, but the other's perception of their own desires and interests and friendships and curiosities you yeah. don't know what they are.
0: Ironically the uh, the word humane is uh, is a wonderful marketing uh, slogan. You you just treat them more humanely on the way to the slaughterhouse, you know. If there was
1: if there was ever an indicator for why logocentrism and humanist philosophy is absolute rubbish. It's that word. <laughs> like, Let's treat them humanely. We'll wage war on them, then we'll murder them, then we'll eat them, then we'll tell them that they deserved it because that's what they're there for.
0: It does feel like there needs to be that systemic change to really force it through. What's fascinating to me is how a lot of this stuff is simulation of pre-existing meat. You know, the meatless meat or the beyond meat, it's all trying to... Look and feel, and even taste in some cases like meat. That system is so ingrained in us.
1: Well, but why? Well, exactly
0: why? Why? Ed, to your point, why can't we have these incredible, weird food creations that don't have to look like mincemeat that don't have to look like hamburgers?
1: Let's do it. Let's make the fake meat. The only well, I don't know because I don't. I don't really agree with the way that things like Beyond Meat were made because they were rigorously animal tested and they Mm. went through the LD50 test, which, you know, like 50% of animals die. So, But in terms of if people want to eat stuff and there are no animals being hurt, eat whatever you want. (laughs) I don't care. Eat dog shit. Eat. Well, Uh I'm referencing, you know, Pink Flamingos and Divine there. Like eat fake-looking weird meat. But the signification of the food is less relevant than mm. the way in which it came into being which as you say is this simulacrum like we don't see it as having yeah. had a history it doesn't have a story it cannot speak it is the differon. and i think one of the things that is why people find my work so radical and i don't say that in a good way because that means death threats and stuff yeah. and stuff like that but is that it's sudden I really think we need to think about time differently. You know, the you mentioned earlier the idea that it's easier to think of the end of the world than of the end of capitalism. And I think that is so because it's easier to think of a rupture than to think of us changing because we don't change. We haven't changed. We look back millennia and our impulses and our love of power they're so marginally different. And they're often the same associations but just with different manifestations. I like the rupture. The rupture is good, especially if the rupture doesn't hurt. Yeah. It doesn't hurt to go vegan now, tomorrow, today. It doesn't hurt not to have kids
2: mm-hmm.
1: instead of having just one or, you know, just the next generation telling your children, don't have kids, but I did, like David Attenborough. Now I'm going to get lots of hate because everyone loves David Attenborough. But the point is that a rupture means a deviation that means lots mm. of imagination and artistry is involved in what next. Whereas decreasement seems a winding down and that's a kind of death, but not an interesting or agential one.
0: Yeah, you know, your your work does feel like a a response to accelerationism and its deceleration in a funny sort of way, you know cessation of reproduction antinatalism you know all of these things are just about pumping the brakes, and in many ways they 're actually preferable to the other option, which is I guess suicide <laughs> would you kill ourselves and end this thing now and this becomes the the issue with your work and you've said it multiple times oh i'm going to get hate for this oh, i'm going to get hate for this there's so many misconceptions and it does feel like i guess some people just don't read your work
1: people don't like to read books no no they just like to read i i mean they read
0: the headlines i'm sure patricia because because you've been accused of being a traitor to your species
1: i actually that was from a philosopher not from the headlines but i'm not convinced <laughs> that that was an insult i mean As white people, if we are anti-racist, are we traitors to our race? Well, if so, then so be it. As a man, if you're not a misogynist, are you a traitor to your gender? I mean-
0: We'll get you a t-shirt or a badge or a pin.
1: Yes, good. Bring it on.
0: Yeah, Traitor to the species, (laughs) which is a good name for a band, actually. (laughs)
1: <laughs> oh that, that is a good name for a band. Oh if anyone makes a band called Traitor to My Species, please please let me. It's going to be like some really amazing black metal band and it's it's just going to be fantastic.
0: We'll have to we'll have to start a a SoundCloud. We'll get some transhumanists together and some posthumanists and some antinatalists and see what we can come up with. But if humans did and they decided to just get out of the way, what more interesting species or entities do you think might arise? Or Again, is this not about uplift in any way, shape or form? uh, On reading your work around animal studies and animal rights, I kept thinking, well, if we got to a stage where we could uplift an animal to communicate with us at a human level, then surely this will solve the problem. But in actual fact, from what you're saying, it would actually exasperate the problem because we've just given them. Yeah,
1: that's a little that's a little anthropocentric, right?
0: Because yeah. <laughs> it's the same problem all over again, which is exactly that anthropocentrism, because <laughs> we're rising them to to human expectations. But if we chose to step off the stage, do you think a new form of species might arise, or will it be humanoids all over again? but might they choose a different system in which to live?
1: I am going to say something really anthropocentric now. Uh Who cares? If we're not there to see it, (laughs) then the question is redundant.
0: Well, nobody cares. No one's there to see it.
1: (laughs) Well, not who cares. I would care, but I don't want to lie awake at night thinking I can't die because otherwise, you know, like the dinosaurs all rise and take over the earth or something. I think what I mean is... That we, and it's part of a humanism, but it's also been part of philosophy for a long time that has challenged anthropocentrism. We need to start shifting questions about, mm. but I need to know what's going to happen next, otherwise, I'm not going to do it, to simply creating good faith actions that would lead to an ethical outcome, but we can never guarantee that outcome in advance. And also, Similar for activism or things like charity, there are people who like to give to charity and tell everyone about it. There are people who just give to charity because they can. There are people who like to do charity work and help because they can. There are people that just like to talk Mm -hmm. about it and share things on their social media, which is not helping. Or maybe it is, I don't know. But I think that what is important is that we need to – really embrace that our activism doesn't need us to bear witness to it. So, for example, I don't need to go touring all the pigs I didn't eat. It's just a very strangely human impulse to want to see the response of what we perceive as the causality of our actions. But everything we do every day Is causally Mm. invisible to us on the whole. You don't know what the effects of things you say to people are, which is why no one really understands what other people think of them. And so we need to embrace that and say, I will never know what the effects of my actions are, but I can try and manipulate those actions so that I would be creating space for the other, whatever that other is in in its many ways, to have the freedom of expressivity, freedom Mm. from pain, freedom from suffering, freedom from murder. And that is for every organism, every entity, human, non-human, and also environments because different environments have different biological needs and biological outputs. So we need to not believe that perception Mm. is... Payoff or validation. That's quite a capitalist idea. And it already occurs because none of us, you know, what Western culture loves to do is give you things packaged without us knowing the stories behind it, whether it's, you know, the war in Congo or whether it's the animal in the slaughterhouse or whatever. So we're already living in a way where our actions Mm -hmm. cause affects that we can never measure or bear witness to. Activism also has to include that and say, I will do my best, and this is why the semi-active, passive activism comes into it, because some is very visible and helpful. You know, when you help someone, it can be immediately seen. When you do certain actions, you will never see them. They will never be in evidence to you, but, mm-hmm. and especially if you embrace that idea of grace, leave the other to be who they want and wish to be without putting them into a human regime of perception. Then that really, to me, is the letting be. And that's also why art is such an important part of a humanism, because art is our desire to perceive. And it's what we've created and how we can mm. train ourselves to look differently and think differently and navigate differently along different semiotic structures and different signifying systems, that is what we can bear witness to. But it would be foolish and selfish and quite capitalist to say, if I'm an activist, I want to see the payoff. And that goes for grander schemes like extinction as well.
0: Well, on hearing that, it does feel like, then there is something worth preserving here. And if it's not the human being, the biological entity, it's human knowledge itself. It's the collection of the story that got us this far. And if we have to put that to another form of substrate, whether it be AI, and then blast that into the sky so it remains as a parable.
1: To me, it's care because I think that obviously people accuse me of just wanting to do a Jim Jones and having everyone mass uh-huh. suicide. And if everyone did that, there would be a lot of suffering left that was of our creation. Now, I'm not suggesting that breeding a new generation will help because you can't breed an activist. So what I'm saying is that while we are here now, the only and best human aspect of us is our capacity to use things like knowledge and science and power As duties of care rather than as enforcement of domination. So instead of studying how, as you used the example of sonar and bats earlier,
2: Hmm.
1: instead of studying how that works so we can co-opt it, how about studying certain environments where, and I don't mean species development because that's for humans as well, because every single cow and every single so-called feral species like donkeys in Australia and every individual someone, animal, deserves to be. But perhaps we could use our knowledge to care in ways where we can foster environments that flourish so that those who live can live well. We have overbred so many different kinds of especially Mammals, so for example, trap and neuter, we we neuter yeah. our feral cats in London. we would you know release domesticated agricultural animals, but neutered so that they would not create an environment where they would starve or they would be unmanageable for their own communities. We would pay attention in that way instead of simply paying attention to the future. So actually our future knowledge would be attendant on this world now and the projected futures for other organisms. Yeah. Not to conserve them for our own benefit so we don't save the tigers so our kids can see them in a zoo, but to make every life that is here now a – managed, happy life that is cared for. and That care can often be helping them, but also it can be leaving them alone.
0: Is that similar to rewilding or similar to de-extinction technologies? Those are two potential paths available to us.
1: It includes both of them, but what's different is that, and the reason I mentioned the donkeys in the Australian desert is because it's been shown that horses and donkeys that were loose after they'd been obviously used as slave animals in horrific conditions.
0: They can't fend for themselves.
1: No, well, they do. They do very well. Of course now Australia is saying, oh, they're feral species, they're feral species. They've been shown to dig water (sighs) holes for all Indigenous Australian animals and so this idea that certain animals belong certain places is really harmful. As we know, the British royally fucked it up by Mm. bringing in cane toads to kill rabbits in Australia. This still sees the animal as an entity that is a pest or a good animal and a bad animal. And it still understands an individual animal as a species. So belonging to something for us and about us. And we we are saving, you know, the tiny little marsupial, but mm. at the expense of the rabbit or the toad, and who is to say which is better. And I think that we could be managing species new relations that we have caused instead of trying to use rewilding to return to this bizarre mm. idea of a Garden of Eden before the humans came because no animal says, oh, I understand I'm a really rubbish species, so I'm just going to
0: – But it sounds also like what you're suggesting, Patricia, us to go, oh, we're a really rubbish species, so I guess uh, – I guess it's our time to step down. Yeah. And, and and that seems like the odd contradiction with a a humanism is it's we're making the decision. We get to make the decision to step down as the as the dominant species. You know, we're still the blasted subjects in this whole thing. You know, it's like, you know what guys, we're out of here. You're welcome to it. Sorry for sorry for everything we did off we go. <laughs>
1: I'm a bit of a rubbish philosopher because I can't think yet of a better way, but that's why I think that exploiting Mm -hmm. what we can do and have done and the powers that those have developed and reinvesting them into Mm -hmm. a care, an ecology of care rather than a technology of progress could be very interesting. And because we wouldn't always be able to perceive what was going on Maybe it's a little less about us, but I never said we could step out of the. That's why there's still the word human in a human, because I don't know how to step out of the human except for by suicide. But I, and I am an advocate of suicide, but Mm -hmm. not everyone wants to kill themselves. And also, as I said earlier, there would be a lot of suffering left that we have brought about. So. I guess it's the best I can do for the moment. Well, well you do know
0: some ways. You do know some ways to step outside of human subjectivity, and those ways are art and those ways are a culture.
1: But I think I think that you can be an artistic biologist, an artistic scientist. Uh I think you can be an anthropocentric scientist and an artistic scientist. So that means that the episteme is less important than the style or technique.
0: I guess that makes sense. But I mean, the core of the core of art and the core of a culture and why it features so heavily in your work is because it allows us an unlimited world of imagination. Kind of what we're doing in this podcast now, trying to, and I'm trying to coax you to, through language only, give me some vision of what this future world without humans might actually look and look and uh, feel like and all we can do is retrieve past visions of gardens of eden or god knows what else to to try and make ourselves feel sort of comfortable with that
1: that's because the the future world will be post-anthropocentric language so it will be the language of animals it won't be and the language of plants and the language of environments it won't be our language so we can't we can imagine it only so far as we can imagine it beyond and before language.
0: And and this becomes the, the fun philosophical experimentation, I guess. And the only way in which to do that authentically is not through language games, is oddly not through philosophy, but it's through things like art and things like the occult. And I'm fascinated to hear more about how occultist practices and, and firstly your understanding of what the occult is, because people hear the occult and they think, God, this woman is doing weird, crazy occultish uh, spells to ensure that we all commit suicide. And, and <laughs> yes, no, to, some, to, <laughs> to some degree, there might be provocations in, in the play that you're doing with some of your chaos magic. But you say in the book, these are extreme times and extreme times call for extreme imagination. So how does the occult produce the Affects which alter our modes of behaviour and how does it allow us to access a space where we can refute the consumerist myth and, and play more freely with a multitude of possibilities?
1: So I think that consumerism is a seduction of despair. So we are seduced by myths of, and I would call Modern neo fascism, a form of subjectivity consumerism. Mm. I will find my identity in my white mythological background. Mm -hmm. So, in that sense, maybe then neo capitalist subjectivity is a technique of despair because it's never fulfilled. And then that also brings up the whole idea that there is a lack that needs to be filled already. And all of these things posit this subject that wants or that is lacking rather than a person or a self or mm. whatever we are as fleshy material beings as being part of something that is not entirely convertible to language and also wanting to experiment with what happens when we make that a different form of materiality, by which I mean when we play with the ego so that we either cease to exist Mm. or we exist differently. So I am not one of those occultists that does spells to get stuff because that to me sounds pretty much like capitalism or just getting a job Uh or doing anything like that. I am not a woo-woo person who says modern this or modern that is stupid, let's go back to some, again, mythologised world of a tribe that you would die in three minutes if you lived there kind of thing. What I love about contemporary chaos magic from Mm. particular people such as Phil Hine and where I learn about different things like Treadwells in London and bookshops, other bookshops like Atlantis and Watkins, is that... You can train yourself to think and be otherwise about yourself and it becomes then so much easier Mm. to think and be otherwise about the world. And it's scary because there's no guidebook but it's also exactly how any creative person feels when they're in that place where – They are creating because they have to, not because they want to. So there's no lack. They're not wanting. Mm -hmm. They are that flow. They are that flow of energy. Their being is simply a mild coagulation of intensity along that flow. So for me, things like uh, rituals, whether they are on my own or with other people, are about – Reorienting and intensifying certain flows of thought patterns and ideas, and because we we're all we all get kind of caught up and obsessed with certain things. Mm. This is just how we think, really. And it's so easy to get caught up with things like how am I perceived by others, or am I doing a good enough job? Am I rich enough? Am I successful enough? Am I whatever? But the, this is like the kind of occult enchantment of capitalism, mm-hmm. there are practices that I have loved learning about, reading about, and practicing since I was very young that are really good at reorienting what you are thinking about. And they have a sense of theatre. They have a sense of drama. Mm-hmm. I, I did my undergrad in classics and I love Hellenic Tragedy. And I belong to a subcultural community, and I have done all my life that loves a sense of drama and tragedy and sort of a comedic form of tragedy. And, you know, so again, very Nietzschean. We're not simply beyond good and evil, we're beyond comedy and tragedy. But what we are trying to do is de subjectivize ourselves because mm. you are, you know, you're you're born into a subjectivity that you don't choose and then you spend your whole life trying to convince yourself that you chose it and that free will exists. because look at who I am. But there is such a pleasure and a joy and an ecstasy in not being mm. or in being otherwise. And I think that also activism is about that, that idea of being in a collective where it's not about you, It's about what can you all do together to quicken one intensity. And you might all be utterly different, different everything. Mm -hmm. But just for that moment, that one intensity is something you share. So in terms of chaos magic, that's why the forgetting is important because then you forget how it got there and you just act like that. But it is also why in certain ways it mirrors capitalism that wants you to forget you know capitalism is the nepenthe Mm. that makes you think it's normal to behave the way you do
0: yeah this is why magic has always been seen as such a threat against capitalism because if everybody was engaging in in forms of chaos magic they realized they wouldn't need to consume to feel happy. There was other methodologies that didn't require the purchase of an item or a thing or some form of materiality. Yeah,
1: DIY Chaos Magic also I should add, because you don't need you don't need to buy a book or a MS How to Be a Witch kit. Uh-huh. You can just like
0: do it. Well that was the great thing about sort of British reinventions of Chaos Magic. It was just experiment, try and see and see what it does. And and, and it's not about being other it's not about trying on different hats it's as you just said it's about being other wise and the wise thing is is important and i guess in a book like an, the A Human Manifesto, and when people hear, you know, the, the death of the human and antinatalist perspectives, and then they hear the word of the occult, they assume it's a wicked thing, it's an evil thing. In actual fact, well, we a, are
1: in Britain, and you did have the satanic panic, didn't well, you? Well it,
0: it, well, it feels like it's exactly the same thing. It's, 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 oh, this, this wicked woman. But in actual fact, the wicked. Patricia
1: panic, it's happening. The Patricia panic, yeah. <laughs> but
0: it's, it's wicked in the awesome sense rather than the, the evil sense. And you say explicitly in the Book. You say a culture like art and activism is an unlimited world of imagination. It does not create hierarchies of truth based on myth or materiality, law or science, and that's what makes it so useful as a tool. And I did have to wonder: Is the manifesto? Is the book itself? Is it a form of sigil? Is it a magical object? Is it a way to affect reality?
1: Probably, but also that's one of the, <laughs> the nicest things that anyone said about the book so far, so thank you. That's really, really lovely. Um, I know it's being burned. Well,
0: I, I just wondered if the book was a, was a form of chaos magic in itself.
1: I think everything we do is a form of sigilization. We just might not know it.
0: Mm. Well, there we go. And, and, and even language itself, I mean, it's called spelling for a reason. Unfortunately, the magic is being focused in a certain direction, and that direction is a direction we've been talking about through this in, entire conversation. And I want to end with a, a provocation, another provocation that you make in the book, which is the a notion of queering our relationship with the future. Uh, Patricia, how do we queer the future, and, and what's possible when we look at the future through a queer lens?
1: Well. At its most simple, and also when it was at its most oppressed and repressed, queer was about not being able to reproduce, not legally, not morally, and that anything that came from a queer person was somehow tainted or perverse. Mm -hmm. Anthropocentrism has reproduced both humans and also human exceptionalism and human behaviour. Queering is simply a way to understand that every organism whether it be within people or within collectives has a capacity to queer directions in terms of how we do how we act and how we be and so we don't reproduce the violences and the oh well that's a surprise that that turned out and happened again because you know (laughs) the victims look different but we just thought they were different i think that we need to start really queering our behavior and i also you know embrace the identification of queer i think that queer is fantastic because we're not there yet but it's beyond taxonomies of both humans and animals it it means everything and it means nothing and it puts the accountability and the responsibility on the person who says you're a queer but also the person who says what do you mean by queer so also embraces the idea that the antagonist must be self-reflective first Mm -hmm. and that through interrogating that, self-reflection becomes liberating, not nihilistic or pessimistic, and that the end of humans is actually the opening of the world.
0: Hmm. Well, there we go. I mean, it, it does feel like Patricia. I could do a podcast episode on every single chapter of your book. And I encourage the uh, the listeners to read it to truly understand the nuances in in what you're saying. And it does feel like, and I'm convinced that it is time for humans to stop being human, all of them. As you uh, as you end the book, and I just want to thank you for being on the Futures Podcast.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Thank you to Patricia for sharing her thoughts on some of the more radical forms of activism against the capitalist enslavement of both human and non-human organisms. You can find out more by purchasing her book, The A-Human Manifesto, Activism for the End of the Anthropocene, available now. If you like what you've heard, then you can subscribe for our latest episode. Or follow us on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram at Futures Podcast. More episodes, transcripts, and show notes can be found at futurespodcast.net. Thank you for listening to the Futures Podcast.